Hello, everyone, and welcome to First Film, the podcast where we discuss famous directors and their feature-length directorial debuts. My name is Baden Chu. And I'm Kyle Testa. And today we'll be looking at Ridley Scott's 1977 film, The Duelist. Way different one than last week. Very, very different. There is not a single comparison that can be drawn between this one and Piranha 2. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it. There's uh, not as much juice in this episode. There's not a, there's not as much Piranha juice <laughs> in this one. Not as much Vietnam War con- Conflicts. There's war, but no Vietnam War. Oh, there's yeah, no that's mutated true. piranhas, but there's a lot of other stuff, including uh, if you're interested in knowing why Ridley Scott is known as the Smoke Demon, <laughs> this is the place to do it. And if you haven't checked out last week's episode, make sure to do Stop it. Stop this episode immediately. <laughs> Go and listen to the first one. And this week, Baden will be covering the directorial segment. So, Baden, why don't you get us started by talking about Ridley Scott? All right, so Ridley Scott is a man born in 1937, two years before World War II, in Northumberland, England. Which, Northumberland is just the most English name I've ever heard. Sometimes you just wonder if they just make up jibbity jabbity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were definitely, like, on the source when they came up with that one. <laughs> um, his father, Francis, worked in shipping uh, and joined the army during World War II. Apparently, according to the book, he was somewhat involved with the invasion of Normandy Beach. Oh! Uh, which is pretty crazy. Yeah! Uh, I believe he worked a lot in the sort of engineering and strategy because wow. he was like a ship guy so he was taking the ships he was fixing them up he stole ships he stole he, he stole boats <laughs> remember that scene in Dunkirk where yeah. all the ships coming yeah that was exactly. him that was all his ships he was underneath the boat patching up holes <laughs> and then so where this kind of comes into play is that after World War II there are these things called the Allied Control Councils they were like the Allied countries set up bases in the Axis powers and so Ridley Scott spent his early childhood in Germany and uh, the the one of the things he, I found that he talked about there was that he really liked on the US military base they had a market oh that could have gone anywhere <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh yeah boy. I know I, I, I really zigged and then zagged and then took us to a supermarket oh man um, but there was a market on the US base that they spent a lot of time on because of his father and he was a really big fan of that uh, because during his early early childhood they'd been through rationing in Britain uh, Ridley Scott said uh, I fucking loved that place polished apples gleaming fruit banana we hadn't seen that in England for years. It was a no-frills <laughs> Some say they still don't have those in England. They just have bovril and grey liquids. Listen, if you're a British viewer, get some better food. So he ended up actually attending over 10 schools before he even went to college because of his dad's work. He moved around just a bunch. Wow. Through Germany, through parts of England. Uh, and he had a younger brother named Anthony. I'll call him Tony. Tony! The Tony! Tony Scott! Big Tony! They were a lot closer. He said that their childhood was brilliant. Apparently their parents were quite good. Ridley Scott actually says that he had some minor acting aspirations as a child, but in sort of the small British towns they were living in, there weren't a lot of plays. Right. So the only thing he could get involved in with acting was uh, nativity plays. <laughs> like for The Christmas? baby Jesus and stuff. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Ridley Scott played baby Jesus. That's right. 
His great uncle was a like movie slash cinema mogul. Ah, so he was like, born into it. Well, the thing is, you know, he died in 1939. They never really knew this great uncle. And I don't think it directly inspired anything. Right. But it is interesting because that would have been very early days of like cinema. The uncle apparently had a, a whole bunch of cinemas. I read somewhere that um, only one of them is still around and it's the oldest cinema in that part of the UK, I believe. Wow. So something like that. He's fairly well known for kickstarting a lot of that in the early days but it doesn't seem like Ridley was directly inspired by that um, although a lot of people in the Scott family ended up going into film and television and stuff uh, interestingly at age 19 Ridley Scott wanted to join the military but his dad a military man himself actually convinced him not to really and convinced him to go to art school <laughs> that's a shocking which twist. is very different from what I would have expected yeah that's kind of the opposite of what you typically think of but I think it's pretty cool apparently that sort of stemmed from the fact that Ridley did terrible in like all of his classes except art mm. to the point where some of his teachers essentially said go to art school because you're not good at anything else um, what is with these directors getting called useless yeah I know use? it's a bit of a trend at least in these past two but yeah so it's his father and mother convinced him to go to art school which I think is pretty cool I have a quote here that says, uh, As soon as he entered art school, it was like the sun rose. He was inspired from a very young age by movies like The Black Swan and Citizen Kane, things that he saw as a child and sort of... He didn't really understand them, but he has memories of knowing that they were something special, right. recognizing that there's a story being told, that sort of thing. So after getting a, a bachelor's in design, he went to London and he explored a lot of other arts, including, at a certain point, he did a short film about a boy who skips school school on his 16th birthday and sort of travels through this small uh, English town. Wonder where that was inspired from. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> big shocker there. But at this London film school, he basically, he talked about the fact that they had a camera there, but you weren't allowed to use it unless you had a script. And he sort of talked later about how that was a really good encouragement for him at the time, because, you know, a lot of people, they just want to get their hands on the camera without the idea set in stone first. And so he wrote the script, he got it approved, he got a small budget from the school, then they gave him the camera to go and shoot this this wow, short film. Wow, that's a good philosophy. Right? And so yeah, he, he made this short film called Boy and Bicycle. Starred his younger brother, Tony. It was a lost film for a while, but they recovered it and they put it on the Duelist CD. He ended up getting a year-long scholarship to America from Schweppes? Like the beverage the company? Beverage company? <laughs> I wanted more details on this, but in the book, it's literally the only time it's mentioned. That's wild! He just casually got like a scholarship from Schweppes to go and travel through the US, but that seemed to be off the back of this boy and bicycle short which did really well at the time but yeah he ended up going to the u.s he got a job at an advertising agency for a little bit um, before returning to england and ended up working with the bbc for a while yeah. so there he apparently almost worked on doctor who but there were a lot of scheduling problems because he was moonlighting so he was doing a day job in advertising and in the evenings he was working at the bbc and he was burning out really fast and so even though he was interested in filmmaking and the BBC and stuff, apparently it wasn't a great environment for creative filmmaking. Could imagine why. You know, so he ended up opting to do commercials instead because they were paying a lot more than the BBC was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he did work with them for a few years. He did some TV show stuff with them, but he ended up pivoting very heavily to advertising and commercials, which is something I, I really didn't know about him, but he was huge in the commercial space. Didn't he do something like over like 2,000 commercials? Exactly, yeah. So he 
he started his own company and he met a lot of people through doing these commercials. Uh, his DP for The Duelist and yep. the DP for Alien, both people he met in the commercial space. And yeah, he did over 2,000 of them wow. over a period of, I think it was 17 or 18 years. And he basically talks about commercials as his film school. He is responsible for a massive shift in the commercial space. He brought this cinematic eye and this cinematic appeal to commercials that just changed the landscape. So he, he worked in commercials for like two decades. And what I think is interesting here is I want to talk about his films, but when doing my research, he didn't make his first film until he was 39 years old. I didn't know he was that old. He turned 40 during the shooting of The Duelist. Whoa! You know, this prolific director, Ridley Scott, he's obviously not the first person to get into the game late, but compared to James Cameron, who was in his 20s when he was working on films, Ridley Scott was pretty late to the game to make his first film. But during that time, he became just a legendary figure in the commercial space. Wow. Right? People knew Ridley Scott commercials. But during that time, he wanted to do films, right? Right. He's spoken a little bit about how difficult it was, actually, to transition from commercials to films. Because not a lot of people were willing to put their money on him when all he had made were, like, 30-second, 60-second things. Yeah, exactly. Which is crazy, because obviously his, his ads were kind of incredible. And if you do 2,000 ads and they're all, like, 60 seconds seconds culminatively you've definitely done at least a movie it'll be one film um it was difficult shifting to that space and he kept kind of thinking about it over and over again he wanted to make a film and it just didn't happen for a really long time it wasn't until alan parker who was one of the big kind of people in the commercial space as well he actually beat him to it alan parker ended up going and making bugsy malone as his yes, directorial debut yes, i didn't know that. and there was another man adrian lynn left advertising to make the movie foxes now, Foxes actually came out after The Duelist, but he sort of was working on this feature film, got it accepted and all that stuff yeah. before Ridley did. And apparently that kept Ridley up at night. Um, and so The Duelist was actually not his first attempt to do a film. Wasn't it his like fourth or something? It was. He'd had a, a few shots at it before. Uh, the main one was a film he wanted to make about the 1605 gunpowder plot. With um, Guy um, Fox, Exactly, right? yeah. yeah. So it was an assassination attempt on King James I and sort of an attempt to blow up parliament he couldn't get funding for it and he had a couple of other projects similarly he wrote these projects he had them storyboard and stuff he was a really good storyboard artist but he couldn't get funding for them no one wanted to give this commercial director a full movie budget yeah so he tried and it wasn't until he was 39 years old that the duelist script kind of came his way the only thing i have written down about the duelist is that uh, apparently he was called a smoke demon what? So, oh, I do know why he's yeah. called that. Also, yeah. we'll maybe hold off on that for now. It's because Ridley Scott <laughs> smoking cigars. He, oh my god. Actually, before we move on, this guy smokes so much. There's one interview where he's talking about a commercial he did for Apple. It's maybe a four-minute interview. And over the course of the interview, he fully lights, smokes, and like finishes two cigarettes in this like four-minute interview. <laughs> that is not why he's called the smoke demon. But he was already thinking about his next film while working on The Duelist. He was going to make a medieval romance film based on this, this real thing, and then he saw Star Wars, and he was devastated because it used many of his design elements. Is he saying Star Wars stole what he was playing? He, you know, not stole, but, you know, he said he was devastated when he saw Star Wars because he had all these ideas and they did it. He specifically referenced the Death Star. Like, he said, once I saw the Death Star on screen, I was like, great, I'm done. He had a medieval planet What created. the fuck was this movie 
gonna be? <laughs> make it now, Ridley. What the hell? Make the film now. Insane. So he he gave up on that film, um, and that's when the script Alien was yeah. offered to him. So Alien wouldn't have happened without Star Wars. It not at least not in Ridley Scott's hands. Pretty wild though, because James Cameron as well. Both of them kind of realized, oh, we can make these sci-fi esque films. Yeah, it's interesting that that has affected both directors we've talked about so far. But he was offered Aliens by the London head of 20th Century Fox. He didn't write it, but he was very integral in the casting of it. And it actually said in the book that he didn't cast Sigourney Weaver until like two weeks from principal photography. It was really last minute to the point where the head of Fox was asking him like, where the fuck is our lead actress? Jesus Christ. So they brought her on like very, very late, very close to the deadline. I don't have too much to say about it, except that Sigourney Weaver said that she couldn't remember a happy moment from set. Essentially, a, a kind of through line with a lot of Ridley Scott's films on top of some very regular reoccurring themes is that he's just not that great with actors. At least he wasn't when he was starting. Like apparently with a lot of his films, especially when he got big stars on there, he sort of just expected the actors to do their job. And there's this one story, I can't remember what film it was from, but this one actor was coming up to him and asking like, okay, so what is my character sort of thinking or feeling? And, and you know, can we talk about my character in this scene? And he said uh you're sad and the actor asked like well why and he said because it's like um jj abrams the chris pine in star trek oh there's just a bunch of flashing buttons there's a flashing button just look panicked you don't know anything else the audience will love it yeah um that came up on aliens it also came up on blade runner which was his next film oh yeah um which was another adaptation that one got a bunch of oscar nominations more of his films are nominated for oscars than not which is pretty impressive a lot of them for best visual effects and stuff. The real question is, Baden, which cut of Blade Runner do you oh watch? Oh my god, yeah. The reason there's so many edits is because, like, he was not allowed to edit on the film. Oh, man. So, so many things happened on it. I wonder um, if that's why he didn't return for the second Aliens. It might be. It might be. Yeah. Um, He really did not like the American film sets for some reason. Okay. Um, to the point where, when he was asked if he preferred to work on American or British film sets during the Blade Runner production, he said he preferred British. The crew member members all took offense to that and made t-shirts that said yes gov my ass <laughs> what is yeah. with these crew members making t-shirts is i know a popular thing the crew members are absolutely wild They're, this is wild though he has so many parallels with james cameron's story right? like the t-shirt thing was literally something that happened yeah. the star wars parallel mm-hmm. and even the monster director kind of thing yeah. as well yeah it's wow you know and they both worked on the alien franchise like it's interesting right but yeah he he did not run a very pleasant set on Blade Runner. Apparently he was very stressed. Harrison Ford, another actor who basically said he wanted to talk to Ridley about what his character was doing and Ridley was more interested in the visuals and stuff like that. <laughs> That's wild because I can't imagine Harrison Ford doing that now. It's crazy. I was reading about this, right? Because Harrison Ford's kind of tired now, yeah. let's just say. But apparently on, on Blade Runner, like he was interested in doing his own stunts for a lot of it. Wow. He was really engaged with this film. That's surprising too considering like his hate for like Star Wars yeah. and Indiana Jones um, but yeah Blade Runner Blade Runner was a brutal set that is where the smoke thing came up again oh man um, because he ran so much smoke on the set that crew members had to wear gas masks and stuff holy right it was God. actually a health hazard how much smoke he had going on you can see it in the Blade Runner sets too there's it's a lot great the whole thing could be on fire and you wouldn't know it looks just like smog city and yeah. I mean it adds to like the atmosphere but definitely wow. Definitely. Like, smoke is one of his most used tools, and it's it's great. It creates a great atmosphere, but my god. But yeah, he, he's done a lot 
lot of really noteworthy films. Uh, another one I have here is Gladiator, of course. Gladiator oh, yeah. was huge. And he also did uh, Thelma and Louise. Now, this is kind of interesting. I won't spend too much time on it. But when I was looking at his IMDb, you know they have that clip show where they sort of play like the, the director trademarks? Yeah, yeah. So one of the trademarks for Ridley Scott was badass female characters. <laughs> no. Now, obviously they listed Ripley. They listed Thelma and Louise. They listed one of the people in the Gucci movie, House of Gucci. Lady Gaga's character? I think so. Oh, wow. Um, but the thing is with Thelma and Louise, I, I thought this was interesting. Though he directed it, he obviously did not write it. It was written by um, someone else, a woman called Callie Khoury. And Callie Khoury originally intended to direct it herself okay. as like a low-budget indie film. She couldn't get the funding for it and whatnot. It ended up getting passed to Ridley, who bought it for uh, half a million dollars. Whoa. Right? And he originally did not want to direct it. So he went and he, he shopped it around to other directors who all passed on it. He, so here's the thing, right? He, he directed it. It got a lot of praise. It's, you know, quote as a feminist film, all of that stuff. I will say I do find it a little bit off that it was originally supposed to be directed by a woman, the woman who wrote it, and then he bought it and he offered it to a bunch of male directors yeah, that's a who weird all passed choice. on it until he reluctantly did it himself. I won't linger on that point too much, but Thelma and Louise is quoted as one of his more feminist films. A lot of his films are not because they involve pretty horrible stuff happening to women. Um, and Thelma and Louise is sort of like the exception, but I just wanted to remind people that he didn't write it and he could have probably got it in the hands of a female director, but he didn't. And I think a, a lot of people forget that the directors most often don't write the movies. Exactly. I just don't think he should get too much credit for that one, but that, that's sort of a side thing. Um, his main sort of trademarks, he does historicals as well as sci-fi films. He yeah. sort of bounces around between those two mainly. Just such uh, a drastic Yeah, genre. yeah. You wouldn't think so, but a lot of the reoccurring themes in his films are like war and sort of dark landscapes and stuff like that and I right. think that is well suited to sci-fi and uh, historical dramas especially and he seems pretty testy um, when people like critique him I, I'm sure you saw the interview where the interviewer says that thing about the last duel and he's just like fuck you fuck you did he blame like um, no one going to see the last duel because millennials are on their phones yeah and stuff? you know he he's done some really great stuff but he, he has some odd takes for sure and I will say having read a lot of this biography one thing that I think is pretty consistent over the tone of his interviews and stuff is that he has a lot of pride he's very sure of himself at this point in time right yeah um the last duel one of his more recent films did quite poorly and he's actually currently, this is another interesting, he's currently working on a Napoleon film. I don't know what else to say. He's still making films? Yeah. He's crazy, man. He's got like three things going at the he's moment. He's nearly a hundred. I'll say that he looks and speaks very well for his age. I was reading some stuff about him on his film sets. He used to uh, have a lunch break where he'd eat his lunch in about eight minutes and then have a 45 minute nap in the middle of the day. <laughs> Uh, but nowadays, he actually doesn't do that. He has no lunch breaks on his film. They sort of eat their lunch as they're going, like between sets and stuff like that. Jeez. Um, but it means that they wrap at like six, whereas a lot of film sets go later. Oh, so that's probably why. So interesting guy. Definitely an interesting history. I, I didn't know so much about his commercial background and like yeah. how long he spent on that. He didn't start filmmaking until he was basically 40. I didn't realize it was two decades. I thought it was like five years. Yeah, it's kind of inspirational. He was late to the game. And I think with a lot of this film stuff it's easy to feel like you're behind because mm -hmm. you can look at other directors and they're like oh i got my start
start when I was like yeah, 16. Yeah, exactly. I was 13 years old when I made my first feature. My name's Steven Spielberg. You know? <laughs> um, to sort of finish off talking about Ridley Scott, I do actually have a quote here from James Cameron Ooh. regarding Ridley Scott. Mr. Piranha to himself. That's right. So James Cameron said, uh, Ridley has continued to be someone I admire more than almost any other director out there. Even his minor films, I'll see as promptly as I can, and his major films, his spectacles, or whatever he deigns to do, I'll be the first in line. Here's a guy who has been vigorous over five decades and is still going strong. Ridley is who I still aspire to be. Wow. Those are some pretty strong words from James Cameron. He actually has a pool where he just plays Ridley Scott exactly. films on <laughs> Exactly. And he snorkels. And he they snorkels. play at the bottom of the pool. <laughs> <was> projected down. <laughs> but yeah, that is uh, just about all I have on Ridley Scott, a man born before for World War II, who now gets upset at millennials and <laughs> I think it's time we bloody get dueling ourselves, and it might be our last duel. It might be our last duel. <laughs> Let's move on to talking about the film. I'm very excited for this one. Okay, so Beta, listen. <laughs> oh boy. I'm going to start it off by saying I was totally expecting something completely different going uh -huh. into this film. I'm not really familiar with Ridley with his historical dramas. Sorry, you didn't see 2010's Robin Hood? No. The most historically accurate <laughs> film of all time? Yeah, the adaptation of the Disney movie, <laughs> the cartoon animals. The fox, the sexy fox. <laughs> uh. I thought this was going to be like Princess Bride or like a Zorro type film. Oh, so like kind of light, kind of comedic? Fair Fantastical. Fantastical, okay. Fantastical. Definitely not that. So where do we start? Why don't we start off by just really succinctly summing up this, this bloody movie. Yeah. The Duelist is a movie where essentially two French military men, Faro and Dubel, get into a feud that ends up spanning several decades of their career as they procedurally try to kill each other in duels with increasingly deadly weapons <laughs> yes. until one of them has to perish. Um... <laughs> That's about it. It's it's just duels and in-between stuff, basically. And somehow it's an hour and 50 minutes. Yeah. And um, I'll just get my, my general thought out of the way. I really liked it. Okay. I thought it was great. What did you think? Uh, okay. I'm so mixed about this one because when I first watched it, I kind of didn't really like it. Interesting. Because I don't really like the main character. <laughs> I thought he was just kind of like a whiny son of a bitch. Oh my God. And I thought like Harvey Keitel's character like how he was just like this one guy like a psychopathic dude who just, he just keeps on. getting promoted too yeah i know and i was just like i want to see it from his perspective like this kind of psychopathic insane guy. like unstoppable menace <laughs> <laughs> but then i started doing my research yeah and i've kind of come around to the film first of all shot beautifully yeah it is a gorgeous film it seems very high budget for what it is yeah like it looks pretty high budget it's it's a historical set in sort of like the 1800s. Yeah, so Faroe is a kind of lower class and Dubert is an upper aristocrat. And I wrote here, I can't tell if this film is supposed to be funny or not, okay? Yeah. There was some dialogue that felt like an Edgar Wright kind of setup where like it was setting up to something comedic, but there was this no punchline. Definitely. I think like Dubert's dialogue in particular was very like quippy. Yeah. It was really quippy. If He felt like he was coming out of a Marvel film or something, right? Like, it's a very serious, like, historical French thing, and he's there like, are we really doing this now? Shan't I, shan't I get my pantaloons on first? I didn't like his voice. <laughs> that was another funny thing. Like, in the film, they're French, and they do, like, have
have British people in in the film. Yeah, no difference in the way There's they talk. No difference. They made zero attempts to like make the dialogue sound different or anything. Obviously, they weren't going to speak French, but there's not even a slight attempt. No, they might as well be English. <laughs> yeah, apparently, he did like a mid Atlantic accent. I didn't hear it at all. It just sounded annoying. <laughs> you know what I did like? What did you like? The front ponytails on fucking Faroe. The braids. Yes, the fucking front braids. <laughs> yeah, I know. Incredible. There's a point about halfway through the movie where he stops doing them. Yeah. And I, I was mourning their death. Towards the end of the film, he starts wearing them again. Fantastic I stuff. I mean, hey man, he just spoiled the plot of the film. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually all about hair. It's like the devil wears Prada. I thought Dehu Bear looked like one of the McPoyles from It <laughs> Always Sunny. He looked exactly like one of he them. He has a very greasy stash. The mustache. Sure. It's the mustache. Yeah, yeah so the film kind of kicks off when um, Faro, who seems to be very interested in killing people dabs the mayor's nephew and then he just kind of like goes home and so Dubert is told to go and like find him because obviously the mayor is pissed yeah. and he finds Faroe and Faroe's like what did I do what do you think you did you stabbed the mayor's nephew that's why I thought it was like comedic he was so dramatic too he was like you've insulted me right Faroe immediately sword drawn he's addicted to dueling he's the, so he has a the problem the point of the film is he's addicted to dueling he actually is like the second Dubel says anything to him, he's like, sword out. He's like, you've insulted me. We're doing this. And Dubel's like, are you fucking serious right now? <laughs> But yeah, like, they just got into a fight, like, immediately. And let me tell you, Faro fights pelvis first. <laughs> he moves like a man with jowls. <laughs> he gyrates the hips. It's so crazy. One of my favorite lines of dialogue, I wrote it down because <laughs> I laughed so hard, was, caught the mange in Italy, poor bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? It's crazy. So, yeah, the first fight, uh, Dubert, he wins. He he cuts up Faro's face, right? Uh, uh, and then he gets tackled by, like, a woman. Yeah, what was that? I don't know, uh, but she tackles him really hard and, like, scratches his face. Full to the ground. Full to the ground. He disappears out of frame. This movie could have been a comedy. It could have been. Because the tackle was really funny. I thought Faroe was hilarious. It I was thought he was so really good. funny. I think it would have been really funny if Faroe was, like, dead serious, and then he just had these, like, lackeys who were really tired of his, like, his <laughs> shit. But everyone was really supportive of him. I really enjoyed this film from a comedic standpoint. I I did. I will say also, early in the movie after that, there is a surgeon who seems to be living with Dubail. He looks like Brian May of Queen. <laughs> yeah. It's spot on. And he sort of outlines the, the main thing in the film in like a very succinct way. He's sort of a philosopher. Yeah. And one of the things he said is that obviously Faroe is going to come after Dubail. Yes. Uh, and he says there are only a few ways that you can avoid death you either stay a higher rank than him um, because then he can't duel you. I think it was you stay physically far away from him yeah. or you die. Well, yeah, it was something <laughs> like that. But I thought that was like a good succinct way of sort of explaining some of the state. Yeah, because basically Faroe's motivation is that he's jealous of the high ranking aristocratic stature of Dubert and he kind of just wants to get at it and because he doesn't really like authority figures. And yeah, that's especially how it starts and later on it sort of just becomes a matter of honor because their duels keep getting like interrupted 
And so Faro like his honor is insulted until one of them is dead. The third duel. That's the one in like they're in like a weird underground thing, right? I think so. Uh one I love how whenever they fight, there's like that recurring theme of like it's this mischievous music. <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah. But the other thing is this duel starts out with one of them like sneezing, but then later in the film, he sneezes in While the he's bathtub, wounded, yeah. And she's like, Don't sneeze, describe honor. And he's like, <laughs> it's indescribable. Describable and he sneezes. And then he sneezes and he's like, Ah, my ring! <laughs> I, I was like, this has to be and comedic. Again, it so easily could have been if it was just played up a little bit more. One of the things I did like in the film is how they sort of escalated the duels, though. Yeah. Like, each time it gets crazier. It starts off with fencing swords. Yes. Then they move up to slashing, like, sabers. Then they get to horseback. Horseback, and then later pistols, yeah. right? And I thought that was really, really cool, actually. I'm surprised they uh, graduated ranks, because they keep just getting their asses kicked. For sure. These dudes keep getting promoted until they're, like, very high ranking. And they get warned by, like, three different people. They're like, oh, you better stop your dueling. Yeah, and then, so I'm promoting you. It's like, very confusing. Using. There is a romance in it. There's a woman named Adele. She sleeps with him while engaged to another guy. Right. They end up getting married later. I thought it was pretty good. I think yeah. they had chemistry. I think they were actually dating on set. Really? I think so. Okay, well, that's kind of cool. Yeah. But as it goes on, there are just more and more people basically saying, like, is your honor really this important? Um, which I thought was really interesting because the final duel, two of Faroe's men approach him on his premises. Yeah. Right? In a field by his house and are like, we have to settle this and goes out to have his last duel with Faro. Which is crazy. And he doesn't tell his wife. They have a kid on the way. Or at that point, they might even already have kids. Yeah. And he just doesn't tell them. I don't know. I think the representation of, like, honor in this film is pretty interesting. One of them literally comments, I think it's Dubert's wife, says, like, nothing cures a duelist. Yes, it's a problem. They're, like, literally talking about them like they're addicts. Yeah, and it's accurate, right? Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting because even though Harvey Keitel's Faro is obviously the villain, um, and he's a, he's a great villain. Yeah, he's really good. He feels like a beast, like yeah. an unstoppable force because obviously every battle they get wounded and and the duel kind of has to end prematurely yeah and every time Faro just comes back stronger yeah while um Dubert like towards the end during the final duel he has like a gimp leg and it's crazy too because Faro's like actually having fun dueling yeah it's interesting because even though Dubert is avoiding the duels yes he sort of isn't at the same time there becomes a point where he just kind of accepts it yeah and he puts it above everything else because he's an addict i think yeah yeah Um, and i thought that was kind of cool because i'm only sort of rooting for him I'm rooting for him, like, because Faro is worse. I was rooting for Faroe. You were rooting for Faroe? <laughs> I was. But yeah. no, I see where you're coming yeah, from. Yeah, like, he's not a hero or anything. No. They're both trapped in this honor cycle. Do you remember after they're fighting the Kozak? Yeah. And Armand tries to show camaraderie like, yeah. by offering him, like, a flask. And Faro just, like, literally, he turns around and just leaves, walks through the cold by himself. Yeah, I mean, they're on the same side, right? They're in the same army and all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And even if they were to be dueling, like they could at least be sportsmanlike with each other. And, and, you know, no one says that they have to be disrespectful to each other outside of it. But then it gets crazier because they start spreading like rumors. Yes. And that's something I thought was really cool because specifically Dubert, one of the things he says early on is like, I'm not going to talk badly about a man who I'm feuding with. Yeah. But then as soon as Faro is like, oh, he doesn't actually like Napoleon. He hates him. Yeah. Right? It's just becomes a, a, a war of lies. Yeah. Which is kind of dishonorable. 
honorable. And I think that's an interesting point is like, they are honorable, but at a certain point, is it even about honor or is it about pride? Yeah, because I think the pride becomes so great because... I want to say three quarters of the film, Thro is set to be executed. Yes, yes. And Dubert literally comes in and requests them to be like, no, let him out under my orders. Exactly. Only because he doesn't want the dueling to stop. Yeah. And he claims it's in the name of honor. But again, like if Thro is on the chopping block and, and was ordered that way by like superior officers, doesn't that override it? Yeah. But no, at a certain point, the honor is kind of gone and it becomes about pride and ego I think it's so funny too because by the end of the film they've kind of swapped places mm. like Fro, literally the only thing he has in his life is the duel yeah and do bear he has a wife he has kids he has like noble status I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure but again he's still not satisfied it's interesting what did you think of the ending I thought the final duel was a bit anticlimactic yeah I mean I enjoyed the tension I think it does do tension very well right I'll say this though you know when um they basically have these pistols that only have a bullet each yeah Yes. And so the duel ends when one person has fired both shots and the, o- and <laughs> yeah. the other person hasn't, right? And so Faroe used both of his shots and Dubert still had one left. Yeah. It just means he wins. Like he could shoot Faroe right there. And he sort of stands up and he's pointing the gun at Faroe. And then we cut back to him at home with his wife. Yeah. I thought they weren't going to tell us whether he shot Faroe or not. I think that would have been stronger. I don't know how the book ends. I don't know how any of the real stuff ended. So like maybe this was, I don't know, not a Ridley Scott choice. But I don't know. I think the film would have been really interesting if it had an ambiguous ending. I agree. What if we end, you know, Dubert is pointing his gun at Faroe. Faroe's like, kill me, kill me. And then we cut to him back at home with his wife. And she's like, what's wrong? And he's like, you know, nothing. And he seems really cheery and like relaxed, right? Yes. But we don't know. Did he point blank execute Faroe or did he let him go or something? But they, they do tell us. They tell him that he like basically said, I own your life now. Get out of here. I never want to see you again. I, I'm better than this honor or whatever. I think it would have been interesting ambiguous. I agree. Yeah. But visually amazing. The the locations are great. The duels are very well choreographed. Okay. The cavalry duel. Do you know that one part where it's like cutting between him? Yes. And like going back yes. and forth and the audio is cutting back? That was so funny. That was a bit rough. Yeah. Because it wasn't just cutting to flashbacks. It was cutting to like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so weird. At one point it cuts to his like his wife going kill. It didn't have the intended effect. I also thought it kind of ruined the stakes too. Yeah, yeah, cuz it, it's this great shot of him sitting on his horse and he's terrified. Yeah, and I understand he it's probably like oh it's supposed to be jarring, but like I don't know, it doesn't do anything. Yeah, yeah, I just don't think the cuts work the way they were intended. I I see what he was trying to do. I just don't think it works great. But yeah, I I mean, it's a good film. I think there is stuff you can see in this film that comes up in his later films too. I agree. So I, I think that's very interesting. I liked it. I liked it. Aiden, how would you rate this film if you were Faroe and on a psychopathic <laughs> dueling rage? How many duels? How, how many front pigtails? How many front <laughs> Would pigtails? I rate this out of two? Two. <laughs> I, I'd give it two out of two front pigtails. It's pretty good. And I have never heard of it before. I wonder which film has been seen by more people, Piranha 2 or this film. I wonder. It's, it's definitely this film. Maybe. Maybe. Well, why don't we talk about that? Yeah, why don't we get into the behind the scenes? I'm very curious. Or as I like to call it, Behind the Duel. <laughs> White on set. 
So, as you said before, Ridley Scott had directed over, like, 2,000 TV commercials. It was insane. And he wanted to make a cinematic debut. This was his fourth attempt at doing so. Ba-boom. But this is the part of the story that gets crazy. Mm. He couldn't afford to buy a story, so he looked through public domain material. And that's why... Something he would later do with Robin Hood. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why he chose kind of this film. Really? So Gerald Van Hughes, who he previously worked on with the Gunpowder Plot, wrote the screenplay after he found this Joseph Conrad story entitled Mm -hmm. The Duel, published in a collection known as The Set of Six. Right. So The Duel was based on real people in Napoleon's army, as you said, uh, and it was DuPont and Fournier. And so DuPont, like (laughs) Dembert, has to deliver like a disagreeable message and... Fournier is like a rabid duelist and he's taking out like his rage on the messenger and it resolved when DuPont was able to overcome him in a pistol duel forcing him to promise never to bother him again which is basically the plot's film oh shit I hadn't like it's actually that yeah so that's how it ends oh okay well that's crazy so Hughes would change many aspects like the names aren't similar Mm -hmm. but he specifically wanted to expand how like the duels affected other parts of their lives and I think that's honestly what makes the film better for sure, for sure. Like, the duels are great, but there is some really great character work in the film outside yes. of it with, you know, associated people. At least with Dubert. Faro gets nothing. Faro gets less Faroe's than nothing. off screen that his band of, like, those two pirate-looking yeah, guys The show guy up. with the eye patch. Oh, that was so funny. Yeah, it's so funny. Like, Dubert has a wife. He has a lovely estate. Faro has two, like, grimy guys. No, yeah, they're super grimy. Yeah. So, Ridley would buy the screenplay off Van Hughes, but he needed much more money to make the film because it's a period piece at the end of the day. And that leads to our next segment, the stars on and off screen. Oh, okay. All right. So Scott would use two of his connections assembled to many commercial shoots from the key members of the crew. The two were producers Ivor Powell and David Putnam, who he collaborated with on the BBC commercials. Yeah, that's a name that came up a lot in my research too. Yes. So Putnam uh, has produced many other films before. Mm -hmm. Bugsy Malone. Bugsy Malone. I'm pretty sure Little Orphan Annie as well. Really? And then he formed Enigma Films, which is what the duelist is put under in Uh, the opening credits. Um, So there were some other actual important crew members who were from the commercials. Frank Tidy was a cinematographer, and Ridley said he was super important because he didn't have to tell him what to do. They already worked together. uh, Costuming was done by Tom Rand, someone he met during his commercial spree, and made all the costumes in the UK, except for a few. What? Those being the military costumes. They got a place in Italy to do it, and they paid quite a bit of money for them but the company actually still owned them so they were renting costumes no they bought them but the company owned them still oh what it's so weird and Ridley was super pissed as he paid 19,000 pounds for the freaking military costumes yes it's clear the props were very expensive too yeah because like everything is very historically accurate it's a well costumed film for sure so here's the big shocker of the film the budget David Putnam and Ridley begged Paramount to chip in an extra 800000 mm-hmm. on top of the one hundred k. Sorry, the initial was one hundred k. Yes. That's it? That's it. 20% of that was spent on freaking Italian costumes! I know! Are you kidding me? So, they begged Paramount to chip in the money. Yeah. Um, and Paramount agreed on one condition. To give them the money, they had to cast their main actors based on a list of four people. Oh. So, originally, Ridley wanted to cast Oliver Reed and Michael 
Michael York as the two main roles. They're basically like prolific British actors. Okay. They're okay. like in super, super old right, stuff. Right, right. Uh, but the two actors he was forced to go with were Harvey Keitel, known yep. for Taxi Driver, The Irishman, mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction. They did work together later. Apparently, Harvey Keitel's in Thelma and Louise. Yes, yeah. that too. <laughs> Keith Carradine, Dexter, Cowboys and Aliens, and Fargo. Really? He plays the cop that owns the diner in Fargo. That's him? That's him. No way. Isn't that shocking? Okay, that's pretty cool. But Harvey was not immediately convinced Baden. So Ridley flew to Hollywood, took two and a half months of persuading Keitel. He saw him four times a week. So he's just stalking Harvey Keitel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this is how he convinced him. He talked about food, France, and cigars and convinced <laughs> him it would be like a big vacation. Oh my god. And the reason Harvey Keitel was available for this film is that he was released from Apocalypse Now as he got kicked off of it. Right. And so the main actors are cast, you have your crew, and the film had a budget of nine hundred thousand dollars still not a lot not a lot of money for a period no it's piece. really not so there's also some other fun cast facts to kind of break up this segment oh boy guy Farrow fights in the first duel you know the mayor's nephew yeah that's alec guinness's son no way yeah that's matthew guinness that's really interesting albert finney a legendary british actor makes a cameo as a french politician he's like the duke of oriente i think okay and he got his role as his girlfriend at the time diana quick who plays laura recommended him mm, would you look at that. And he got paid with a case of champagne. I kid you not. That's how they paid this guy because they didn't have the budget. Jesus Christ. They had a budget for champagne though. Uh, you know what? Ridley probably already owned a bunch of champagne Ridley, or something. Ridley's a prolific champagne fiend. 100%. So with the budget for the film, they couldn't build anything as they didn't have any money. So they went to the existing locations to film everything. So no, none of those buildings you see None of the rooms you see were built. They're all real locations. No, like, sound stages, no nothing, Nope. Huh? That's pretty impressive, actually. Yeah, and it was all filmed in a very small French village. When they arrived, the mayor of the town held, like, a reception, okay? <laughs> And it was in the town hall, and coincidentally, on the wall was a painting of a historical French general, the exact same that Harvey Keitel's character- No friggin' way. Was based on. Really? But not only that, none of them knew that the town they were filming in- Is where that guy was from, basically. Yeah. That's an insane coincidence. The mayor must have known, right? Like, that must have been part of why. Yeah, right? Right? Because could you imagine they gather this film crew, and then they're like, wait a second, and they all realize at the same time? <laughs> like, that's nuts. Uh, so yeah, most of the scenes and locations, because they were shot on location, were shot in like one or two days. Ridley accounts in one point, they had to add a third day because the raw film was being transported back to the UK from France, <laughs> and it was confiscated by French custom agents, <laughs> and they opened the film reel, exposing it to light, and just the Oh no. was all lost. Are you shitting me? That's heartbreaking. Yeah. Dude, Ridley Scott would have been so pissed. Okay, uh, yeah. I cannot even imagine the lightning and fury he would have brought down <laughs> upon those. He was like, how dare you? How dare you? Fuck you, sir. Know. Fuck you. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Fuck you. And then he dueled them. He, he killed them. them both. He pulled out the 1700 euro pistol and he shot yeah, exactly. them um, So Ridley behind the camera. His visual style was inspired by Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, mm. which is also a period film and a director he would take inspiration from for Aliens after yeah, 2001. 2001. And you can see it kind of in the way it's framed. Like, it's very similar. Kind of that painting landscape. Mm-hmm. So you can see the skies, the trees in the background. Yeah, I read some of that. He used like a very specific kind of camera filter to get that painting yes. look. Oddly enough, most directors don't do this, but Ridley operated 
operated the camera himself. Right. So that he could see the frame and he would actually specifically line the actors up and show them where they have to start and end in the frame. You know, when he did Alien and Blade Run and stuff, because those were in the US where the union laws were like stricter. Yes. He couldn't do that. He like actually wasn't allowed to be the cinematographer and director in the US. Yeah. And so he said he did that because of, you know, the lighting, the budget. You can just frame mm-hmm. things easier because he didn't have a lot of time. Yeah. And being able to juggle all these aspects shows like what a really like good director he is. He is in many ways a manager and a businessman. Like he went to the locations and location hunted himself. Mm-hmm. He would walk around, look at certain like structures. The example he used was in the pistol fight. Right. He saw the ruins and he would drawing them out in the storyboard and he would wait during the times of day and he would actually mark the time so that no. they could get the lighting. Really? Yeah. So when you see all those sun rays, he specifically marked, okay, this is at, this like, is the time to get them. This is like 3.50 in the morning. There's a really cool Instagram account called Ridley Grams. Those okay. are actually what they call his storyboards. They're called Ridley Grams. Oh. And if, yeah, you can check it out. It has a bunch of his original like storyboards for different films. It's really wow. cool. He does them all himself and the lighting in them is very specific. Yeah. Do you remember the scene where they're inside the tent and two people are arm wrestling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got all of his extras and all the props and framed it up so it looked like a huge military space that was occupying it up. Yeah. But literally, if you opened the tent any further, there was nothing. Nothing at all. Because that's all they had the money for. Yeah. Uh, Keith recounts, Keith Carradine says, we painted half a carriage red so it looked like two different carriages. No way. When the black side exited the frame, it would immediately turn around and show the red side of the carriage. Oh, that's a good trick. It saves so much money. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, And he used some other crazy things too. He actually took things from his commercials. In one scene where the horse is riding off into the snow, that's a shot from one of his commercials. Just like insert shots, huh? Yeah. What fucking commercial was that? I don't (laughs) know. Was it a fucking Chanel one? I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) It was a a car commercial, baby. Oh my god, it was a... I'm I'm in a car. I'm getting chased by a a horse (laughs) in in the winter. In the snow. snow. But they can't catch me. (laughs) Um... Now it's time to talk about the duels. The duels themselves. So the first duel. Yeah. Some of the scenes with the sabers are actually car antennas. So when you stab someone. So you can stab and it it goes in. Yeah. That's really clever. Other than that, Keith and Harvey insisted on using real saber swords and they are actual steel. Oh, fucking course they did. That's insane. But the sabers were blunted. But even with the blunted edges, as Ridley said, I don't want to use a sword cap. Yeah. The point is so sharp. So they actually could have severely like maimed themselves. A hundred percent. And not only that, there was only two weeks of rehearsals for the choreography. Really? And it's a miracle nobody got stabbed. Well, like, I think that's part of why the choreography works. Maybe it's partially because of that budget, but the duels are fairly simple in the choreography, but in a realistic way, right? The third duel ends with them just, like, wrestling to the ground. Yeah, and you can feel the weight of the swords as Mm -hmm. they're slashing. Mm -hmm. But not only that, Scott shot the first duel himself with a handheld camera, and he would be getting so close that he would get hit by the swords. So he had to wrap a towel around himself. Oh my god. That's the one like that kind of starts in the house sort of. Yeah. At the very yeah. start. Yeah. Uh, so now we're going on to the second duel which is inside the uh, lowered barn. Right. This was one continuous shot. So when you see the actors are getting exhausted they're like actually tired. And on top of that they're avoiding getting stabbed. Yeah. But then there was another complication as well Baden. So in this duel you can see sparks flying against the wall as they're scraping against the brick. Yeah. They achieved this by hooking up 12 volt batteries to the sabers. 
and they remarked how they would get heavily shocked. Shocked wielding the swords? Yeah. It is a miracle that Ridley Scott hasn't actually killed an actor yet. They could have died. Yeah. What's even more remarkable is Keith actually worked the swords before, but Harvey hadn't. Right. And Keith would basically say how Harvey wouldn't follow his marks for the choreography, and he was getting, like, way too, like, reckless <laughs> with the swings, which fits his character, like, really Definitely, well. Definitely, yeah. I mean, you can probably see that in some of the performance where uh, Dubert is, like, always on his back foot in the fight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here's where the uh, smoke demon thing comes yep. into play. The cavalry fight in the mist. Mm-hmm. Early in the morning, they traveled to this river called the Dordogne, I think it's pronounced. Sure, Dordogne. And it was total blocked out white mist. Wow. You couldn't see anything. They lost an hour of filming. I thought you were going to say they lost an actor. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) They wandered off into the smoke. I'll get to that. (laughs) They lost an hour of filming as he was shouting to the unit and he was asking where they were. (laughs) And that's when he realized that they were on the opposite side of the river. river. (laughs) And so he had to make like a two mile like trek out to get to the other side. That was the most awkward and like tense two hour trip of anyone's life. I know. I swear to God, the crew members must have been terrified. And to make matters even worse, Keith during this duel was thrown by his horse into a tree. Into a tree? On their last day of filming in France. I mean, at least it was the last day, I guess. Didn't really need him anymore. So the end of the film, the last shot was actually completely coincidence. Really? When he's looking out on the cliff. One of the crew members pointed out that the sun was going to peek out of the clouds. Mm. Harvey had vertigo and was worried he would fall off the edge of, like, that cliff face. But as he turned to the east, the sun perfectly came out. No way. And hit his face, casting light upon him. That's some movie magic right there. Right? Like, how do you even plan for stuff like that? You just can't. It's just, like, magical. Yeah. So, final words. Final words. The film was actually originally going to be for French TV. But Ridley persisted on it being a feature, and this led it to winning the special jury prize at the 1977 Cannes Festival. Yep. And the film was actually pretty successful in the UK. I tried to find box office numbers. Mm-hmm. There was nothing out there. Didn't it have a pretty limited theater run? Like That was in the US. That was in the US, right. Basically, it was shown in seven theaters. Seven? That's it? That's it. What? As studios didn't really know how to sell it, but... It the main thing is it opened the gates for Ridley. Yeah. He has a quote talking about this. He said, is this normal? Putnam said, no, it's not normal. Clearly they don't want it. But if we had independent movie platforms, they'd probably have got it a candidate nominations. But because Paramount didn't know what to do with it, it died on the sidelines. And yet it runs today as a five-star quote masterpiece on Netflix, which was <laughs> killed 35 years ago, which was pretty stupid. So I go, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> it comes back to the fuck Every you. Single time. Uh, and so it's a relatively unknown film, I think, these days. Yeah, yeah. And I think, obviously, Alien, his next film, greatly overshadowed it to the point where there are probably people who don't even really know he made something before that. Yeah. So, Baden, what do you think of Ridley Scott as a director? Now that you've gotten all these perspectives, you know what his films are. Yeah. Again, like, reading this biography was interesting because I think that he's obviously someone with a lot of experience who has come a long way. He revelled 
revolutionized commercials. He's one of a very limited set of directors who yes. made the transition from commercials to Hollywood movies. He's, he's definitely the most successful out of them. He's, he's a bit of a household name. Critics and analysts often have a difficult time with him because while his work is prolific and visually stunning, his characters are not always the best. They can sometimes leave something to be desired. Um, I don't know how accurate that is. I think the character work in The Duelist is quite strong. Right. And, and I think in other movies too. I don't know what to make of him, really. It's a mixed bag. Very mixed bag. Very mixed bag. Obviously talented. Very good artist. Bit hard to work with. Bit standoffish. Yeah. In many ways, he is kind of inspirational, if for no other reason than he got into the game very late. Exactly. Um, And he still made it big. And he's still going, right? 85 years old, he's still got three or four things in production. Which is wild. It's really, it's admirable, right? He He's a legend of the of the cinema. He's had box office bombs before. Yeah, yes. Um, but he just keeps going. He has a relentless work ethic. Yeah. I don't know. So before we wrap up, Baden, I have some fun facts. Mm. So during the scene where Dubert asks Adele yeah. to marry him, she starts to laugh. <laughs> this wasn't actually scripted or intentional. It's because of his shit accent. His shit accent. In his <laughs> I wish. She actually had a hard time keeping a straight face as one of the horses had a huge erection. <laughs> oh my god, that is really something. And I got a fact for you, Baden, specifically about your favorite thing in this movie, the braids. I do love the braids. You actually have a braid fact? Yeah, I have a braid Jesus fact. Jesus Christ. The braids have a practical use. Is it... what? What? The braids were designed to protect against saber slashes to the face. Really? So the thicker the braid, it would protect you against the sharpness I of the saber. I cannot fucking believe that. Can That's you insane. believe that? It doesn't help Harvey Keitel's character. He gets like a cut across the face a bunch. Also, it's like, how are they supposed to protect? It's hair. It's hair. It's very thin. I, I guess it could be, it's like a rope if you knot it correctly but maybe yeah. that's insane i'm glad that it was there though yeah i mean it was very funny so that's why they wear the braids in the film um i, ha- I have a, a sort of fun fact not related to the duelist this is related to gladiator there are a few scenes with like a lot of flames and like a very large battlefield and apparently uh, a series of pipes were laid underneath the forest floor to pump propane around the battlefield and create oh, the man. flames although the conflict was set in northeastern europe scott ended up filming in Bourne Woods in Surrey, England. The reason was because the England Forestry Commission was going to destroy the forest already. No and way. And so he said, uh, I'll do it. I'll burn it to the ground. No <laughs> way. <laughs> and they said good. They said good? They said good. Oh, fucking way. So part of Gladiator was shot at a forest that was already supposed to be destroyed. Oh my god. Um, he did that YouTube thing. The uh, A Day in the Life or whatever it's called. Really? Yeah, yeah. In 2010, he did A, a, a Day in the Life or, or A Day on Earth or something. Wow. Um, with YouTube. And he did another one uh, in 2020, um, which I think is a really cool project. Yeah. No best director win, though. Wow. Very well known, but none yet. Just trying to get one with Last Duel. The Last Duel. Didn't get it. It's those damn millennials. Damn millennials. Phones. Maybe he just has an Adam Driver curse. <laughs> Maybe. He's <laughs> so cast 
casting him, you know. What else was Adam Driver in? House of Gucci. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Adam Driver, military man, reminds him of his father. Oh my god, wait, <laughs> you're right. There we go. Yeah. Interesting director. Not my favorite, but... Not my favorite, for sure. Obviously very talented. Talented as well. But next, we're going to be looking at a bit of more of a modern director? Uh, I'd, I'd say so, yeah. Certainly a, a more recent film. Yes. Um, very different. And supposedly, from what I've heard, very good. Uh, yeah, it's it's one I've actually seen. I'm excited to rewatch it. Ooh. We'll be, be looking at Sofia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides. Yes. Very, very excited to do that one. I've never seen it before. Don't know what it entails. I remember really, really enjoying it. And that was only about a year and a half ago. That's what we've got coming up next. Stay tuned for that. But um, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like the podcast make sure to give us a five-star review that's you can right do it in app and all your podcasting platforms guys uh if you're not going to do any of that at least subscribe at least stick around please for subscribe one. please follow email ridley scott about how shit the last duel was fuck you good <laughs> fuck sir. you sir fuck you <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for listening